Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to the 13th episode of From Page to Practice. Given the current global situation, I've decided to throw my schedule out of the window in favour of producing more appropriate episodes for the situation in which we find ourselves. Don't worry, the books I plan to feature will return at a later date, along with some additions that I may have purchased in the meantime. Before we really get into talking about the practical side of remote teaching and learning, I'm thrilled to be able to share with you a short message from Dame Alison Peacock, CEO of the Charter College of Teaching, about the Teach Together campaign. Hello, this is Alison Peacock, a Chief Executive of the Chartered College of Teaching. I wanted to explain a little more about our way of connecting teachers during this crisis. We've launched a campaign called Teach Together. And essentially, this is a um, a means of keeping people in touch with each other via a text message. We're working with the Behavioural Insights team and a psychologist is helping us to craft messages so that you would receive a message once a week that would enable you to maybe take some actions, read some work, to just feel better about what you're doing. This all uh, relates to research that has been done in the States, working with colleagues after the 9-11 disaster. And they decided to try to create a community by a weekly text message, just as we're offering you now, to help those workers who'd suffered incredible stress and difficulty to feel better about the work they were doing, to reduce the number of people who might leave their profession. And in fact, it was incredibly successful. And so we decided that now was the time to try this with you. If you would like to receive a weekly text message from our scheme, Teach Together, then please visit our website at chartered.college and sign up. You don't need to be a member. You just need to be a teacher working in our schools or colleges or early years settings at the moment, doing the best that you can be. Thank you very much indeed. As well as this campaign, the Charter College has brought together a huge collection of resources related to coping with the situation in which we find ourselves. One of these resources is discussed by our next contributor. Hi, my name is Shelley Masters and I work for Minds Ahead. Um, Minds Ahead is a social enterprise that supports schools to be world leaders in transforming the mental health of the next generation. As part of this, we partnered with Leeds Beckett University in 2017 to create the first centre of excellence dedicated to strengthening mental health in schools uh, across the whole of the UK. Um, Since then, we've been running a master's course uh, in leading school mental health for school leaders, on which I am one of the associate tutors. And what I'm discussing today is based on the research called Five Ways to Wellbeing. And the idea of these different five evidence-based actions is that they can help your students feel better and that there is not just one way to feel better or to have well-being in in any situation. Um, These suggestions are typically things that pupils would be encouraged to do and experience in school, but we can also promote them and encourage pupils to do them whilst they're at home too. 
And for those of you that want to look into the research around the five ways to well-being, there's a very large amount of data you can look at. A good place would be uh, a government office for science report back from 2008, which you can easily find on Google. So moving on to what these five ways to well-being are, um, the first one that you can recommend for your students is to connect with people. So encourage them to take time to do a video call or a voice call or a Zoom call or a WhatsApp or FaceTime with their friends. Um, or if you've, you're working with younger pupils, you could encourage, pe encourage parents to organise this for them. Social friendships are really key for students' development, well, everyone's development and well-being. Um, and obviously you can build collaboration opportunities into learning activities too. The second way um, to well-being is being physically active. And there are lots of activities that pupils can do indoors without needing much space. Um, for example, many of us would have heard of Joe Wicks's The Body Coach, The PE with Joe, The Daily Class at 9am that's on YouTube. Um, and lots of other home activities can be home workout activities can be found online from circuits to Pilates with a quick Google search. The third way to well-being is to keep learning. Um, learning is a key part of well-being, um, as well as any specific learning activities that you might be asking them to do from the curriculum. You could encourage them to pick some new learning off their own, such as Duolingo, which is the language app, or FutureLearn, which has MOOCs for older children. The fourth one is to give to others. We're seeing many, many examples of this um, in amazing ways from the community kind of all over the UK at the moment, but there are many simple actions we can encourage children to do from helping their parents and their carers by making a meal at home and um, volunteering to do a shop for neighbours, assuming that our pupils are safe and well to do so. Um, you could ask your class to write a letter or a story or draw a picture to send to a care home. Um, there are care homes online that are asking for that and that could be sent by email if post is not possible. The fifth way to well-being is to encourage your pupils to take notice and pay attention to the present moment. Um, whilst being sensitive to the challenges that they're facing, you can encourage them to focus on the positive things, um, such as asking them to write down three things that they're grateful before bedtime or at lunchtime. And now how do you, or some ways that you could um, encourage these, encourage your pupils to do these, is that they can be sent to parents via a learning platform or an email, or they could be set as homework challenges for your students. And um, consider setting them one challenge a day as pupils do have a lot going on. And obviously we're trying to uh, avoid overwhelming them, but focusing on one of these ways a day um, is a good place to start. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. If you're interested in the article that Shelley discusses or any of the other huge host of um, articles that are available, please visit the Chartered College website. They're all open access. You don't need to be a member to access these articles. So far, everything we've heard about has been to do with well-being, be that our own or that of our students. Before we move on to talking more about the ins and outs of actually teaching remotely, I wanted to share with you one more thing related to pastoral care. This morning I tuned in to some of the great presentations from the cleverly rearranged Research Ed Durrington. Check out the hashtag RedDurringtonLoom for the tweets. One that caught my eye was the three C's of remote pastoral care by at Sputnik Steve on Twitter. He talked about contact in a time of isolation and giving a sense of belonging as well as not relying on access to technology. 
congregation, considering how we are listening to students, giving our emotional support and communicating our values and key messages. And finally, curriculum and how pastoral leaders should be carefully considering their PSHE or PD curriculum, as well as online safety. Finally, he reminds us of a fourth C, our colleagues, and looking out for them too. Steve has a book coming out in September and that will definitely be one that I'll be putting on the From Page to Practice schedule. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next, we're going to hear from Emma West and she's discussing Mark Rowland's article about supporting disadvantaged students at this time. Hi there. Uh, My name's Emma, also known as Miss West or M Secondary English on Twitter, and I'm a lead practitioner for English at a northern coastal school in East Riding. Um, I'm currently a Key Stage 3 Curriculum and Literacy Lead. Um, I'm probably considered one of the hashtag tiny voices on Twitter, so this is my way of hoping that I may be able to uh, share some ideas, current initiatives that's been run at my school, those that I'm helping with to help close the gap for our most disadvantaged students during the current school closures. Um, My school has a high percentage of PP students and a concern that we've had is that these disadvantaged students will be disproportionately disadvantaged by the current school closures. Um, So in response to that, I read an article on 24th of March by researchscore.org by uh, Mr Mark Rowland on distance learning through the lens of disadvantaged pupils. So this article suggested 15 things to consider when planning distance learning with this in mind. Now I'm not going to go through every bullet point on that article but I do suggest you possibly read it yourself and have a look I just want to respond to a couple of the points that were made by Mark Rowland in the article so to start with uh, this includes the vital role of pastoral care so that communication continued communication with our pupils is going to be vital during this time the article mentions the importance of routine which for many of our students you know is, is what they're going to be missing the most not just those that are disadvantaged PP students um, so can we online create this routine, even just a small amount of these learners who may find it hard to access the work or who may find it more likely to give up um, at home? So to tackle this, to create some routine, our school, and I know that other schools are doing this as well, are using social media to share certain tasks at certain times of the day. So, for example, in English, at 1pm every day, we share a recorded reading of a short story in five parts. The idea is that a student can go onto either the school website, onto the Facebook page, onto the Twitter page, listen to the teacher reading that part of the story, and then it's followed up by um, a quick comprehension quiz on Show My Homework. Um, and that's something we do at the same time every day, and the, the students know that that's where they can go to find it. Uh, we then respond to those quizzes with praise, you know, to kind of keep those students focused. And that even if that's all they've done that day, it's important to praise that, what, that work that they've done. Um, so... That reading has been important and we're continuing doing that reading over Easter as well to kind of help those students maintain that little bit of routine through the holidays as well that they may be missing. Um, The research school article I mentioned states that quizzing, and as Mary Myatt would say, high challenge, low threat, uh, that's going to be key to keeping our students engaged in their home learning as well as helping to consolidate that learning. So we're hoping that the, that kind of quizzing, like you say, is high challenge, low threat. It's something that the students can do every day. Um, where possible, we've also shared links to free online texts for Key Stage 3 and 4 so that they can you know, potentially read from, read from home themselves. But we do understand that this is going to be challenging for some of them. We're encouraging local people in the community as well to take part in these online readings. So this is something we've developed back in December, actually, as a school. We call it Bitlit. And the idea is that 
Originally, staff from the school would share a weekly video with their tutor group on a, a little bit of literature that they wanted to share with the group. And the idea is that it encourages reading for pleasure. So this has become really important over the last few weeks, you know, contacting people in the local community, asking teachers from all different subject areas to get involved. Um, and this is something that I'm maintaining. So I've been really lucky to have T Dom Conlinson, a poet, um, do a short reading for us as one of his poems. People think uh, people such as Sir Greg Knight has, has uh, agreed to do one, a member of parliament for East Yorkshire. Um, Rob Vickerman, a rugby captain, did one for us recently too. So it's really getting sort of the community, the people involved, people who have links to Headland School especially, to kind of keep that going. Um just to move on from that point, that's one thing that we're doing. Moving on from that article, it says, the key thing that we've found and that I agree with here is that students shouldn't be overloaded. So initially we had a high amount of calls from and Facebook messages about the work that we were setting being too much. So planning these lessons and resources involved consolidating work into one learning platform. Google Classrooms is something that some staff are using. It's been made available to all pupils. However, we've found that Show My Homework seems to have had a better impact. It's hard to say at this stage which one's working better, but we're kind of seeing how we go with that. Um, so we plan to set two weeks of work worth of, worth of work two weeks ago, thinking, you know, what do we do? We have to make sure these students have something to do. And I think even though we gave clear instructions on that, they shouldn't spend more than four hours a week on their English, that even this we had to consider was too much that students also had other lessons that they needed to be on top of as well and it was actually too much for parents and, and students to do during what is really a stressful time. Um, so this meant that we had to reconsider how much work we were setting after Easter, what the expectation of that work is to try and ease that feeling of being overwhelmed um, to, to help those students that potentially you know, could be switching off. Um, as a school, we've got great communication with parents on social media via email. Parents can also contact the school via the homework app. So here, concise instructions of parents has been really vital. So if engagement with schools has been more difficult, these families have often been targeted by heads of year, their lead teachers to ensure help and support is available where possible. Um, personally, I think it's important that I use the homework app and Google Classroom to communicate with my students as much as I can, to praise, to encourage, to kind of... Uh, ease that anxiety some of them may be feeling over the work to encourage them to do the best that they can uh, we also offer rewards to those students who pro do produce and send work in you know as a bit of incentive so amazon vouchers are put students names are put into a, a draw and those students that are chosen will re receive an amazon voucher that's one thing that we're kind of looking at, at the moment teachers nominate the kids that they want to be um put in for that one and that's what we do at the moment each week there's a new chance to be nominated um so that's sort of an incentive to get students to do something and they don't have to do a huge amount of work to be nominated it just needs to show that they've engaged in something so for example like the literacy videos for example um further on in the article it also emphasizes that teachers and school leaders need to remember that parents, particularly in the area of the school I work for, especially, may be encountering financial hardship and health concerns. And obviously these take priority. We understand that. We're keeping distance learning now achievable for all and as low stress as possible for families as we can. So this has meant setting less hours a week of our, our subject to not have the expectation of work to be handed in and that actually anything that they do will be you know beneficial to them. Uh, those students that do that are, you know, really pushing themselves and want more work, 
then they've got that contact with their teachers if they want any extra challenges or projects to do as well. Uh, we also have a first story writing group as well who've been kind of keeping the creative writing skills up and communicating with our resident writer through first story has been really important to a lot of our students as well. Um, yeah, so that's something that we've been looking at too. Um, at the moment, you know, we obviously know we're learning as we go. And I think this article rightly states the key points that teachers and leaders need to remember when we're setting these remote lessons online. But we are all still kind of learning as we go as well. The key things I think I've taken from this article are that students need to feel that sense of connection with their teachers while they're not in school. Um, and then furthermore, further down the line, that sense of belonging those students feel when they return to school as well and I actually find I've built up relationships through messaging students and offering support and encouragement where I can and I hope that maintains and hope that stays the same when they return. Um, okay so I hope that this may have helped share some ideas um, you know with setting work online particularly literacy I think that the readings that I've seen so far, especially from celebrities and things, are great, but it's so much nicer to see familiar faces. I think the students have really enjoyed seeing their teachers read to them um, and to get responses and likes and, you know, to feel connected to their teachers has been really important. So that's one thing I think that we're going to continue to do. Um, I hope I haven't taught anyone to suck eggs. As I've mentioned before, we're kind of learning as we go. So I've found that Twitter has been a fantastic hub for ideas, for debate, for resources. And for that, I'm really thankful. And really, all we can do is sort of share ideas and, and help each other where we can. Um, so thank you. I've been Miss West. I'm M Secondary English. Thank you for listening and I hope you're staying safe. Take care. Goodbye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Returning to the Research Ed Darrington Talks, I also listened to Harry Fletcher Wood talking about how to get students to turn up to online learning. His points were the following. Specify your goals and be clear. Give motivating action. Students won't want to be the odd one out. So use language like almost everyone completed or more students than ever before completed. Planning action. Saying exactly when you're going to do something increases the likelihood of doing it. So get students to state their intentions. And relaunching habits. It takes a long time to build habits. So don't worry if they're not doing it yet. Restate these expectations after Easter. On a similar theme, we're now going to hear from Matthew Courtney, a returning contributor, and Lizzie Nurse talking about an article on promoting student engagement in online learning. My name is Matthew Courtney, I'm a primary school teacher, and I'm going to speak about an article I've read and the implications I think this has for online learning. So the British Educational Research Association have recently shared a virtual issue of the British Journal of Educational Technology which is called COVID-19, Online Teaching and Learning. So it's open access, which means it's free for anyone to go on and view the articles. And the editors have made it free until the end of April. The article I'm going to speak about was written by Kay Foon Hugh in 2004. So articles from the virtual issue are articles that have been written already, which have been pulled together because they're relevant and timely for now. So the, the, the article I'm going to speak about is called Promoting Engagement in Online Courses. What strategies can we learn from three highly rated MOOCs? So the article explores these strategies and factors which have ensured high engagement in these MOOCs. So MOOCs are massive online open courses, which are free short courses offered by universities and colleges. The first MOOC was launched in 2008. And since then, 
many organisations and institutions and made them available online. So there's thousands out there with from a range of topics from things like ethics, law, chemistry, statistics, and pretty much anything you can think of is available online now. As many schools and colleges move to move their learning online, it seems a useful time to reflect upon challenges and successes of these MOOCs and what learnings we can draw upon at a school level. So even though there's been discussions about the expectations of pupils learning at home and what is appropriate to expect from them, I think it's clear if schools are going to be closed for a prolonged period, we need to think about how we can ensure active engagement in the content that has been put out there for the children. So the article looks at three successful MOOCs and explores the factors which have made their engagement levels high. So the first factor I'm going to speak about is quite a broad one, so active learning, a broad term but defined in the paper as students doing things and thinking about things they are doing. And one of the strategies that's highlighted as being really successful in promoting this is quizzing. And we know there's a wealth of research already which highlights the benefits of quizzing in general and retrieval practice and the things that go along with that. But this article looked at the three things within quizzing which makes these quizzes successful. So the quizzes gave clear explanations and answers. So that means that if children or students got a question wrong, they could go back and kind of look at the error themselves and see the mistake they've made and then learn upon that. They also, the quizzes reviewed the main points covered in the lesson. And interestingly, they allowed multiple retakes of the questions. So I think at a school level, it would be useful to think about, do we have the IT capabilities to allow these quizzes to be interactive and allow students to retake them if they've got questions wrong? The second factor I'm going to speak about is instructor, instructor accessibility. So students being able to communicate with their teachers. And some of the methods that they used in these MOOCs were forums, video chats, um, which we could use as schools. Um, other ideas are also the use of social media, so things like Twitter to engage with um, students. But there's definitely implications there for workload and a need for clear expectations of the timings when these are expected to take place and the quantity of the interactions which are expected between the student and the teacher. The next factor was peer interaction. So the, the MOOCs used forums to allow students to discuss the course content. And this was most useful when there was clear boundaries given. So, for example, there was a coding MOOC which allowed students to discuss some of the complex problems in the forums, but students weren't allowed to give the answers to, to each other. Another factor which made these successful was teachers being involved to prompt and structure the discussions. So that goes back to that instructor, instructor accessibility factor. There's also a need at a school level to moderate these discussions to make sure that it's appropriate what's going on in them and also think about the appropriateness of the stage and age of the children and the format that peer interaction should take place. The next factor was using helpful course resources and the paper looked at the benefit of having a range of resources rather than just one type. So things included were video lectures, online discussion forums, live webcasts, quizzes, readings and links to relevant materials. In the video lessons were the most most common format used and some of the things that made these successful were having the image and the voice of the instructor available and interestingly this increased the feeling among the students that the instructor was speaking directly to them rather than it being a generic video for everybody. Other video strategies that made them successful were um, having bite-sized videos, so short videos that cover one or two concepts with examples given 
having optional subtitles on the videos. And I know there's apps out there now that can support this and provide that service. Providing slides or notes alongside the videos, which summarise the main concepts that are covered with them that students can then refer to and go back to. So from this article, the four things I spoke about were active learning, instructor accessibility, peer interaction and helpful course content. I think now's a useful time for us to reflect upon what we can learn from these successful MOOCs and their engagement and what we can apply in our own context to ensure the content we're putting out for children during school closures is engaging and ensures that they are engaging with the content. The final article I found really useful is Hugh's article on learning from the three most successful MOOCs out there at the moment and the five kind of clear points or tenets that have come out of that um, to promote engagement. Uh, the first one being that problem-centric learning and clear instructions are really important. Uh, examples that come out of the three different MOOCs that are very successful include relating the task set to real-world problems and situations, providing step-by-step -step instructions, uh, providing examples and non-examples of concepts to make that really clear, concentrating on one key process at a time, Socratic questioning, panel-style discussions and guest speakers. The second really important aspect is instructor accessibility and passion for the subject they're teaching, uh, which was shown through live discussion options with uh, which engage the students, uh, virtual office hours to allow questions and give timely responses, um, a dedicated sub-forum to provide help both from the instructor and from peers, uh, and the use of humour and passion from the instructor. The third one was active learning, uh, including the, the use of weekly mini-projects where everything needed to complete it was covered in the lesson with step-by-step -step instructions and providing a template or other scaffolding, uh, requiring self-assessment units, um, providing quizzes, allowing multiple attempts to encourage mastery, uh, and peer evaluation using rubrics, allowing follow-up questions on marking via a forum. The fourth uh, really important aspect to keep students engaged was peer interaction. So allowing group discussions of tasks, uh, sub-forums to follow up on feedback from peers, posting all of the essays and the reviewers' comments on the forum to help students who receive little peer feedback, uh, and live interactive discussions. And the final point that made students um, more engaged in the MOOC than not uh, was often having a variety of resources and learning strategies. So providing online videos and quizzes and live chats and discussion panels and assignments and reading lists and optional challenges and optional subtitles on videos, uh, providing slides or notes to cover key points, having a big mixture of all of those rather than one type of learning uh, was shown to keep the students really engaged. Um, also providing really clear information, uh, not only on the instructions of the tasks, but what the expected outcomes were and the time expected, um, the time expected it to take them. So that students knew how much effort is expected for each of the different tasks so they don't either over or under apply themselves. Um, and also a kind of stretch and challenge option of organising competitions or a hall of fame uh, for those who are really interested in, in that, that particular subject and want to challenge themselves. Now, while I'd love to be able to get the entire National Theatre to join in with my lessons, uh, I don't think guest speakers are likely. But what I am going to do uh, is to find lots of this online stuff at the moment um, and link bits of it into the lesson so that students can watch in, um interviews with famous people who are talking about the plays that they are studying.
I'm going to try and encourage as much peer interaction as possible, uh, both in collaborative tasks and in provide peer feedback. Um, particularly from a drama perspective, they've gone from being collaborative in every lesson. Uh, so I need to try. I want to try and keep that going as much as humanly possible. I'm also using Planet eStream a lot, um, which is a brilliant resource if you've got it as part of your school. Uh, you can find any content that's been on the BBC plus a load of other things. Um, you can chapter it, you can pull out tiny sections of it, you can set quizzes on it, you can record your own voiceover on it. Uh, there's loads and loads of options of um, things that you can do with that. Uh, so particularly for analysing live performance, which is part of what my students need to do, um, that's going to be a really helpful tool to me over the coming weeks. I'm also probably going to use Prezi for non-linear presentations and movement-based presentations to keep them engaged rather than PowerPoint. Uh, and I might start using Padlet to make some more aesthetically pleasing content to see whether that helps. But I think the main things I'm going to focus on is what skills I want them to learn rather than what the final product's going to be. There's always a debate in drama about process versus product. Um, and the students I teach are very much interested in the final showing and how snazzy it looks rather than what they did to get there. So I'm really hoping that this is going to be a great opportunity to delve deeper into the process in lots of different ways um, and force them to take a step back from the practical work uh, and really engage with kind of the thought processes that should go into it uh, rather than diving in straight away. But I think my main takeaways from the research I've been doing is how important having multiple forms of resources um, are going to be. So videos and quizzes and online forums and links to things they can watch and reading lists and trying to really vary that so that it changes every lesson. Uh, I'm going to try and do as much as possible with personalising their learning journeys, giving them choices of tasks, giving them choices of reading or routes that they can follow or resources to look at um, so that it feels like they've got some ownership over what they're doing. Uh, I'm going to try and do as many live discussions as I can so that I've still got that one-to-one -one contact with all of the students. Um, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I chunk as much of the information as possible so that I don't give them too much in lesson one uh, and then leave them to access it at their own time because I think for a lot of students that becomes overwhelming whereas if uh, I'm, I want to try and split that down so that each week there's a, a manageable task that they do and that it builds on it, but that they're not kind of left to their own devices. Um, and to try and stay as human as possible, um, which is hard, <laughs> but uh, I, I really miss seeing all of them and being uh, around them and, and uh, making jokes with them. So I'm going to try and do that as much as I can, even though... Uh, it's always via a computer screen. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. The next Research Ed Durrington session I am going to share some takeaways from is Paul Kirchner. I won't go over everything he said, but here are a few of the key things. Avoid too much new subject matter. Where there's new knowledge, make sure to activate prior knowledge and ensure students know where to access it if they can't remember. Communicate your goals and expectations. Give examples and scaffolding and provide feedback. Now we all know that that last one will be tough. So here, making another appearance on the podcast, this time talking about remote whole class feedback, is Henry Saunston. What's this, his third contribution? I think I should be giving him his own slot at this rate. Thank you, Henry. Henry Saunson, 
professional tutor at City of Peterborough Academy. I'd like to talk just briefly about uh, possible use of whole class feedback as a tool for streamlining and focusing student response and also looking at teacher workload during times of remote teaching. It's nothing new, um, but perhaps it's something that we're overlooking and could be using a bit more efficiently. The benefits of quality feedback, of course, are innumerable. They're well documented. And we all must remember, of course, that feedback and marking are not the same thing. I'm talking here more about the opportunity to make sure that students on a weekly basis or a regular basis are getting information from their teacher, which in turn they can respond on to keep that feedback loop going at times where distance is a necessity. Feedback is high impact and low cost, as we know from the EVE toolkit, among many other sources. And to go back to Kluger and Denisi from 96, task-focused feedback enhances performance. Um, so we're not looking at focusing on specific person-to-person -person feedback here. We're looking very much at the task itself. Now, that same study also looked at the benefits of motivation to improve the subsequent efforts of the students. Again, whole-class feedback allows for simple praise and also an easy but clear link to the next phase of learning or the next set of tasks that are going to be set. Implications essentially is that we, with our remote learning, are possibly setting simpler tasks. We're not requiring independent learning as such, because independent learning is almost an oxymoron, isn't it? Um, learning happens when a teacher can facilitate that process, can provide the facts on which the students build um, and can then guide their practice. We are essentially monitoring independent practice of existing skills and allowing perhaps all the time for that essential 80% success rate to keep that motivation high. Um, because there's more time here, that delayed feedback that whole class feedback once a week could offer is more beneficial to the students in this situation. To look at Hattie and Timperley from 2007 in their collection and synthesis of research into feedback, they told us that effective feedback focuses on correct responses and it has a low threat level for self-esteem in particular. So again, the whole class feedback allows us to pick out very simply what the right answers were, where those misconceptions might have been, and doesn't target individuals necessarily, particularly not when it comes to negative or perhaps slightly excessive highlighting of errors. Um, effective feedback according to Hattie and Timperley and developed for many years afterwards, addresses where am I going, how am I going and where to next, all of which you can encapsulate in a basic whole class feedback template. You can give feedback on the task, the process and the self-regulation. Um, all of those are the most beneficial aspects of feedback, the latter in particular self-regulation for novices. And we are essentially placing a many of our learners back into novice status by not being there with them in the classroom. The feedback is about the task, the work that was set, not the person that did it. You can set up the next week's learning on the, feed, on the whole class feedback document. You can ensure that time is given to respond to that feedback appropriately. Dylan William, among many others, um, tells us how important it is to ensure that if you give feedback to a student, it's timely, but also there is time for the student to respond to what you said. It's about quality, not quantity. Okay, um, As we know, we're aiming to reduce our workload in times of stress, but also to improve the learning of the students and their engagement. To look at the EF marked improvement uh, study from 2016, they state that a mantra might be schools should mark less in terms of the number of pieces of work marked, but mark better. So when we're offering up one, maybe two tasks a week per student for them to complete in an online sphere, we want to make sure that that feedback is regular as well and it's targeted, it's focused and there are absolutely no misconceptions about the feedback. 
as much about the task. If we're setting tasks to be done at non-specific times during the week, which of course depends on access the student has, and it depends on the engagement level, the supporting nature of their community, then that personalised feedback can be difficult, it lacks context. Whole class feedback can offer opportunity also for your weekly review, which, uh, as Rosenshine tells us very, very clearly, is an essential aspect of that teaching process. As with all initiatives, um, in inverted commas, uh, even in times of remote learning and support, coaching and training is needed to ensure fidelity of the implementation and appropriate models need to be provided, um, which is something, of course, that needs to happen at school level. But certainly the option is there to be explored and to potentially be using whole class feedback much more effectively um, in these times of social distancing, online teaching and remote feedback. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Another couple of useful articles that I've read are by Mark Enser. One is on the TES and is called A Five Point Model to Deliver Online Learning. And the other is Remote Learning Impossible Desires and that is on Mark's own blog. Both articles focus on applying what we already know about great teaching to our current situation. They're both really quick reads, so take a look so that you can remind yourselves of the basics and probably give yourself a pat on the back because you're already on the right lines. One element of what Mark writes about is retrieval, and here is Rachel Pickering to talk a little more about this. Hello, my name's Rachel. I'm a teacher of French and German and former head of department from the east of England. Since lockdown started, I've reread two pamphlets which I found particularly useful from retrievalpractice.org. They are How to Use Retrieval Practice to Improve Learning by Pooja K. Agraval et al. and Retrieval Practice and Transfer of Learning, Fostering Students' Application of Knowledge by Stephen C. Pan and Pooja K. Agraval. What I really like about these pamphlets is they really don't involve a huge amount of change to your teaching practice. In fact, they state that uh, effective teachers already use retrieval practice without thinking much about it, but they have some really good techniques that you can use uh, to change things a little bit or uh, just remind you to include more retrieval practice because it's very clear that the more retrieval practice you use, uh, the better students' memories and learning will be. Um, We'd already incorporated retrieval practice uh, into our year 9, 10 and 11 schemes of work in the form of starter activities. So, uh, for example, in our year 9 French scheme of work, we would be using uh, the textbook uh, Studio 3. And when we were looking at holidays, we would use the uh, content from the year 7 and 8 scheme of work about house and town just to make sure that we're revisiting that content so that those students who are choosing it for GCSE uh, don't feel it's uh, something new in year 10 and 11. Since remote learning began I've been responsible for year 7 French content uh, and I've been using it uh, retrieval practice for starter activities. For example, uh, we are currently on the town topic in Studio One, but I've been asking them as a starter activity to come up with the longest sentence they can about the school topic. First, 
without looking at their knowledge organizer or their book and then looking at their knowledge organizer to see if they can improve it. Uh, According to the pamphlet, post-retrieval feedback is really important. And while we're not able to mark our work at Key Stage 3 unless students email it to us directly, um, I feel that using their knowledge organizer will then help crystallize what they have remembered and also give them some additional vocabulary. Hopefully as well, it's two terms since they did this topic, so they should be able to incorporate some more complex language such as modal verbs that they've come up with and and learned in later topics. Uh, We've also been looking at big six translations, so two topics, uh, two sentences, sorry, from uh, last week, two sentences from last term uh, and two sentences uh, from the beginning of the year that they then have to translate from French into English. Um, I'm planning to make a list of key grammatical concepts having read the transfer of knowledge and learning pamphlet uh, to the idea being that pupils can then use these key concepts such as modal verbs, infinitive constructions, past tense, future tense, etc. And asking pupils to include them in sentences about each topic. The idea being that the more you use these uh, concepts, the more embedded they will become in students' working memory. uh, This is because, and long-term memory. I think it's also important to to say that uh, the authors of these pamphlets emphasise that retrieval practice should ideally be done without a mark or grade. It should be formative assessment um, and, and to help foster students' learning. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. The next article I'd suggest you take a look at is Remote Learning. Why hasn't it worked before and what can we do to change that by Daisy Christodoulou. She mentions three principles that we should be following. Using high quality, well-designed content, getting the right kind of interactivity and remembering that we are not just brains in a jar. It's a longer article so I'm not going to go into any more depth here but you can find that on her website. I've ordered her new book Teachers vs Tech so I'll be covering that soon. The next few contributions are all from Lizzie Ness. I've been working with Lizzie as part of the Chartered Teacher Programme and her research project was already focusing on the use of edtech, so it makes sense that she's got some reading ready to share with us now. Another article I found quite interesting was one um, trying to create a, a sort of generic model of integrating technology into lessons by Wang in 2008. Uh, And he said that the model consists of three areas, a pedagogical one, a technology one and a social one. And these are the three key components of any technology enhanced learning environment. So the pedagogical one uh, needs to make content meaningful, relevant and authentic and allow learners to add their own resources. Um, So the research, um, good examples from the research included choosing a task to complete from a list, Uh, and reading lists that students could choose from. So I'm trying to give a bit of variation to things and not asking every student to follow the same path, um, but to personalise their learning a bit and take responsibility for that. The social aspect included group work or project-based learning and both synchronous and asynchronous communication. So good examples from their research was having a group sharing space, so something like the OneNote collaboration or Teams chat, real-time chatting and instructor feedback, 
uh, a question and answer forum to allow peer responses to um, and learning through online discussion. Uh, they flag that that's really important and there's lots of evidence to show that online discussion is a really good way of students learning, uh, but it's almost, almost never valued by students. So it's a, up to the teacher facilitator to try and show how important that is or to be explicit in what value that session holds. I'm trying to do the real-time chatting in all of my lessons by being there it particularly if I've got content that's uploaded um, but being in the team's chat ready to answer any questions that the students might have and the technology side is just to ensure the interface doesn't actually create barriers to learning so trying to use a familiar system or one that students will find easy to use Wang also notes the importance of having a personal space and a collaborative space to work in to show the best learning gains and the ability to track progress, which is quite easy in something like OneNote because you have a collaboration space and the individual student folders so that they can work um, with their peers and then um, provide some actual evidence of their personal learning. There's also quite an interesting diagram which shows the role of the teacher as facilitator um, and shows the, the four different strands of facilitation skills for online discussions. So the pedagogical strand uh, is to allow the students to achieve the learning objectives, which also means um, initiating questions, providing information, making connections, giving informative feedback and summarising key points. The managerial strand of setting the agenda or the timetable, um, keeping the discussions focused, monitoring regularly, inviting missing students to catch up uh, and setting the rules and norms. The technical strand, uh, meaning that the students can access all of the things that we're putting up easily. So demonstrating the use of the system, starting new threads, uh, providing opportunities to explore the system and developing a study guide and the social strand to create a friendly environment, setting the tone, encouraging participation, inviting responses, asking questions to clarify and acknowledging contributions. Um, I thought that's a really helpful thing and I'm trying to look at that most mornings to, to remind myself of what my role is these days and to try and make sure that I use all four strands of skills in any lesson. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. I think maybe one of the most important things I'm trying to do at the moment is remember the brilliant things that technology can do all of the time um, to try and keep seeing the positives in the situation uh, rather than the negatives. So one of the articles that I've read recently that was really helpful for that um, was one by Deanie Ruthven and Hennessy, which was about the things that technology can do in the classroom. Uh, and they kind of came up with five main headings for that, which was broadening classroom resources, uh, including like the range of resources, up-to-date information, new possibilities for differentiation or a range of tasks, enhancing working processes, so making research quicker and easier, um, allowing alternative ways of communicating findings or presenting work or enabling redrafting of work and allowing some of the students to find the resources themselves and add to the ones given by the teachers. Um, at fostering more independent student activity, uh, either in specific kind of study skills like extracting and summarising relevant information, the freedom to select resources not provided by the teacher, enabling a choice of presentation methods, uh, improving pupil motivation because of the immediacy of access to resources and the reduced handwriting requirements, and actually mediating subject learning and thinking 
So, for example, having a wider range of sources might increase empathy or their ability to look at multiple viewpoints. The two major downsides that they found uh, was between mainly around the freedom to selecting resources that students could waste a huge amount of time uh, burrowing down into a search engine and often finding stuff that was totally pitched at the wrong level for what they needed. Um, so what I'm trying to do to counteract that is to create a selection of hyperlinks or websites or um, articles for students to look at and maybe give them then a choice of which ones they look at. Um, but to direct them so they're not kind of wasting their entire life on Google. Um, and the other thing that came out of that article, which I hadn't considered at all, was that now we've got to think about a different level of differentiation, uh, not only of the subject knowledge and their ability to do our subject normally, but also of their IT skills. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is to in ensure that whenever I set a task, uh, not only have I given very clear instructions on how to use the software or access um, whatever it is I want them to access, uh, but also to make sure that I'm always around um, uh, in the kind of Teams chat function to answer any questions as the lesson's going on. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I think one of the most interesting articles I've come across is the one by Barbara Oakley, uh, a paper on what um, they learnt from creating the most successful MOOC that there is at the moment. Uh, and it's mainly based around Mayer's multimedia theories, which are really useful. Um, the first one of which is that students learn better from words and pictures. So trying to use both as part of my uh, PowerPoints or display materials, um, trying to use optional subtitles on videos so that they can... Uh, sort of read and watch. The second one being that students learn better when extraneous information is removed. So I'm trying to do any live video against a very plain backdrop and not my living room. Uh, this helps remove cognitive overload and also a lack of questions about my bookcase or what's on my wall. Thirdly, that students learn better when the key information is highlighted. Um, so I'm trying to do some live videos and then backing them up with um, notes at the end that cover the keywords or images um, so that students have got that as a recap um, or that they can be looking at that while they're watching the video to try and make sure that the, the key things are really solidified for them. Fourthly, that students learn better when words and pictures are located in the same zone. Um, so they talk a lot about how they use green screen um, and that they uh, video the presenter pointing at various things and then splice that on top of, say, a PowerPoint slide, um, which actually is not terribly difficult to do in iMovie, but is hugely time consuming. And I can't imagine doing that for every single one of my lessons. Um, I can really see the points behind it that um, the humanity of that and the engagement with that, because if we were in a classroom, we'd be pointing at the board or pointing at what we wanted the students to focus on. And then to just have us as a disembodied voiceover it must be quite difficult to keep their, their focus and their motivation. So I'm if I am, I'm going to try and create some of these green screen um, things. And then to make sure that this doesn't feel like a complete waste of hours of my time, I can then use them again as flip learning materials next year. Oakley also talks about how motion attracts and keeps attention, which is another reason for them having this kind of green screen and zoomy animation, uh, which is way beyond my abilities on PowerPoint. 
But what I have started trying to use is Prezi instead of PowerPoint um, so that the, the, the slides are kind of are presented in a moving, zooming way uh, with very little technological input on my part. Um, and hopefully as the screen is less static, even if it's just the movement kind of helps re-engage the student to focus on what I want them to look at next, um, that might be a start. Fifthly, Oakley said that when information is provided piecemeal, not all at once, uh, students learn better. So um, particularly as I'm a drama teacher and uh, I wanted to set up these kind of longer term projects like I would normally, I'm still setting these longer term projects, but I'm providing a key skill each week so that the students sort of build from one week to the next, to the next, to the next, and then end up with their, their main project at the end. Um, I'm doing this through bite-sized videos of content so that hopefully there are lots of different kinds of resources in any single lesson and it's not just me talking at them as a disembodied voice for an hour. Sixthly, um, Oakley said that students learn better when presented informally uh, and in a conversational style and preferably in a standard-accented standard voice, uh, which not a lot of us can do much about. Um, but I think I'm trying to come across as still as human as possible, which is quite difficult when you're just talking into something uh, or even if you're staring into a camera. Um, but I think trying to use as much humour as possible in my lessons is, a, is proving a good way to keep them engaged. And lastly, uh, students learn better when seeing human-like gestures and movements, which again, um, Oakley put down to their green screen techniques that they were using. Um, but I think if I, even if I'm doing a kind of split screen video and a screen share, I'm at least trying to look over at the interactive board that isn't really there so that it feels more like I'm in the room and I'm engaging with the, the screen that they're seeing um, in a way that they understand and they've seen me do before. The final text I'd like to recommend today is the booklet shared by the Durrington Research School, Making Every Distance Lesson Count. Making Every Distance Lesson Count starts with some key tips and then goes on to apply the Making Every Lesson Count principles to remote learning. If you're not already familiar with these, then you should check out episode 10 where you'd hear all about challenge, explanation, modelling, questioning and feedback, the main pillars of the original book and all the subject-specific books that followed. Fans of the books will find this booklet particularly useful. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I hope this special episode of From Page to Practice has given you some practical ideas, but also signposted where you can find more. The links to the specific texts that I personally have spoken about and some others can be found on my blog in the article titled Call for Contributions from Page to Practice Special Episode on Remote Learning. I've not quite decided what to do for the next episode. So long as Daisy Christodoulou's Teachers vs Tech arrives in time, I think that would be an appropriate choice given the circumstances. If you've got any other thoughts, or maybe you've got the book yourself and would like to contribute to the episode, then please let me know. All that remains for me to say is to remind you to sign up for the Teach Together campaign via chartered.college. Look after yourselves, your families and your colleagues and keep doing what you do best, just maybe a bit differently to normal. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, 
visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.